relationships are all there is at the end of the day. And I think a lot of times we're willing to sacrifice the relationship for efficiency. I'll give an example, we're actually going on a, on a journey to, to buy a, another piece of enterprise technology, another a CRM. You know, at the end of the day, we probably knew what CRM we should buy and we knew what CRM that the group was going to recommend, but it was the journey of building the relationships and organizational alignment and trust. It's not missing those moments, right? Because you could just buy the technology. What a lot of people do is they buy the technology and then they make the decisions. And, and then they're like, oh, now that we have this technology, we should figure out what we think about this. And we end up digitizing a whole bunch of crud. Welcome to Humanizing Software where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives. Hear incredible stories and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to episode 51 of Humanizing Software from Tailwind Business Ventures as we explore this concept of technology and keeping the humans involved on the technology equation. We invite you to visit our website at tailwindsw.com. Check out our channel on youtube.com with any of the 50 previous episodes where we have had lively and engaging discussions with a number of men and women who have their own passions, their own personal experiences, and their own capabilities of their viewpoints on what humanizing software and this concept of people-driven technology tr truly is and means. Today, I'm exceptionally pleased to have somebody join me that is not only a very well-known and recognized leader in the field, in his field and in the industry, but that I consider a dear and personal friend. Chris Turner is joining us today as the EVP of Experience at University Federal Credit Union. Chris is a very, very well-known leader, mentor, and team builder throughout the Austin and Central Texas community and is involved in a number of different innovation and transformation challenges. He's held senior leadership roles at companies such as Chipper, Tosh, WP Engine, Iron Mountain, and a host of different startups. The list of boards, nonprofits, and groups that he is in currently working with or affiliated is just simply too long to list here. We are blessed to have served together on Austin Bridge Builders Alliance as uh, both members of the board over the last several years, where I've had an excellent opportunity to get to know Chris and what makes him tick even more so. So please join me and welcome Chris Turnley to the conversation today. Chris, good morning. Good morning, Andrew. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. As we do in every one of our episodes, the most important thing on this chat on humanizing software is for the folks that are listening in to get to know the humans that are part of this actual live cast. So, Chris, the floor is yours. Tell us the Chris Turnley story. You know, um, man, I, I'm, I'm blessed to be here. And, and that's probably most of my story is that I'm blessed to, to still be here. And um, I grew up in outside of Spokane, Washington. Um, got an amazing mother who's, who's incredibly strong. I, I'm one of six kids. And that probably has a lot to do with my background, but also a lot to do with my future and how I view the world, I think. And uh, and it was pretty simple. It was a small town, small town feel. It's funny enough. I don't really know there were jobs out there. I knew there were people who did work. My dad was a sheet metal worker and they owned a, 
owned a tavern. And so I knew they certainly went to work, but I wasn't really sure of the professional class and certainly wasn't thinking about technology growing up. I remember I had a computer programming class back in the 80s where we tried to make a man run across a screen and that didn't go well for me, but it did go well for other people. And uh, so realized that that was not how I was going to interact with technology. And uh, I've probably been in some ways a a laggard to a lot of that, um, but I'll, I'll explain why. I think I usually take a a human approach to to most everything, and and what it, what it means is how do I help the person in front of me? And so I went to the University of Washington. I was blessed to get a scholarship to do that, and really wanted to get out of Spokane. Uh, knew at that point, Spokane's an amazing city to grow up in, amazing culture, small, safe. And but I also knew it. Had, I hadn't really seen what I wanted to see in the world, and so every day I would wake up and learn something, not just about school, but about something I had not seen in the world. And so realized I was just very small in, in the midst of that. And so began uh, finished up college. Was actually a teacher for a year, and uh, it, during college I ran a childcare in inner city Seattle. And so I think you know kids and 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 that I, that I really thought that's what I was going to do. And then realized in this was the mid '90s that I could actually impact the world through working in this thriving technology area. I was living in Seattle at the time, so everyone was working either at Microsoft or some of these emerging big technology companies, and realized that they were impacting the world in a whole different way. Whereas I really only thought you could impact the world as a teacher, uh, which certainly you could, but but it wasn't my calling that I thought it was really going to be. So at that point, started working in technology. And uh, we started a startup. It was funny enough around uh, online voting uh, back in the late 90s uh, with a group of dreamers. And we just saw the problem of how hard it was to vote on things. And, you know, we thought, well, someday maybe we could do this online and this burgeoning Internet. But really even solving it for companies or political conventions that were all coming together in one space. And how could you even do it through the old intranet? So some of those photos are amazing. Went through that through the dot com crash, and then uh, and learned a lot. We sold off a couple companies and just made enough to kind of be an addict and go to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. Right, so you know, not enough to to change your life, but certainly enough to keep making life changes. And uh, it was it was that was so incredible. And then I joined Iron Mountain, which at the point was about a hundred million dollar company, and we over time were blessed enough to grow that thing into about three billion dollars. Worked for some amazing leaders learned how to roll industries up and, and, and call that and learned how to merge technologies into what I would call a, a much more uh, sedentary industry that, that was not embracing technology at the time and how to integrate that and just how hard that could be. Even if you, even if you realize that was going to be a block, you, you still got blocked. Um, you could talk yourself all the day. We're not going to be like Kodak. We're not going to, you could read every Harvard business study. We're not going to hold on to technology while you are grasping at old technology. Like, like they're ripping it out of your dead hands and was just amazed to learn that. And then we moved to Austin in 2013 to build a church actually is what moved us. Um, I was an executive at Iron Mountain at the time and they were, they were very uh, gracious to let me move down here knowing I had one more year and I was, uh, I was leaving them. So, and then jumped into startup world uh, all over again and, um, and really looked at what was going on. And for me, it's always been about the people who are building it. And how centered are they at the people who they're trying to solve the problem for? So if you can find groups of people like that who are amazingly customer obsessed or member obsessed, as we talk about at UFCU, 
and they're they're all working in unison to solve that problem, but they are fully integrated in those communities. That's where I think I can bring the most value. There's other people living on the cutting edge of things that I think are amazingly smart and amazingly brilliant and can kind of see around two corners, as it were. I'm pretty much, I can see around one corner at a time, but what I can see is what I think people are going to actually utilize. And what I talked about earlier is I think I'm a little bit of a, of a, a call it a little bit of a laggard. So I want to see what actually is going to get used. And there's a lot of press that gets talked about with technology of, wow, this happened and this happened. And you look back and, you know, one out of five of those or one out of 10 of those actually kind of hit. And, and I want to make sure if I'm going to, move to move a lot of people towards something that it's really actually something that's going to benefit their lives. You know, there's a lot of new technologies with that where you're like, Hey, I, I didn't know I needed this, but this is awesome. And you really didn't. Then like six months later, you're like, Oh, no one's really utilizing clubhouse kind of like they were utilizing clubhouse before, but we all thought we needed an audio version of social media. And I'm like, no, cause we have podcasts. And so it can still fit a niche, but before everyone jumps on. So there's a lot of those things that are, that are, that are kind of big hits and off. And my kids are still trying to explain to me why be real was really cool. And I'm like, I'm not really sure why one photo a day is what I'm trying to do right now. Nor am I ever in a cool space when that be real thing flashes up. I'm always like, well, this would be inappropriate or whatever. So I don't think that's, that's great. But they, uh, what drew me to, we had sold off Dosh in, in 2019 ish about 2020. And in the end of 2019, I knew, I knew we were, that was coming up. And what I looked at was how do I make a difference in the city in which I believe God planted me? And I'm, I'm a much of a faith guy. That is, that is a huge part of my, my um, story. I really don't have much of a story without that, but so I'll just say that piece because it guides a lot of that. But I really was, was praying about what do I do in this city in Austin, Texas city growing amazingly fast. And how do I help and it got orchestrated through uh, some friends and a board member that we both sat with, Tony Boudet, that there might be an opportunity at University of Federal Credit Union. I'd never thought about working at a financial institution. I'd worked in fintechs. I had built that, but never thought about what a financial institution could do. Certainly never thought about working for a bank. But the more I understood the impact that a credit union could have in a community, uh, if we did it really well, like the importance of doing something really well is, is, a, is a core value of mine. Because if we do this really well, it helps a lot of people get access to, to changing their financial lives, which again, then changes their whole life or can at least. And so I think about that and that's what guided me. And I was like, oh, now what, what's the need? So I knew, I knew it was a company I could work for. Then it's like, okay, can I actually be helpful to that company? And I looked at, okay, what do they need to know how to do? Well, it's not just building technology. It's, it's how do we pick the right kind of technologies that actually help members do the things that they can't do or get access to areas they can't do. Because the whole thing is there's a huge amount of people that are underbanked and unbanked. There's a huge banking desert and some huge disparities in there that, that, that are a personal passion of mine. But then there's a whole bunch of people that I'll just say is, are under information with real information or access to a person that can actually help them solve things. Because the key in financial, I remember being on a, I brought up Clubhouse earlier, but it was funny. In the pandemic, there was a lot of time just to kind of wrangle around stuff. And I was on a call with a group of people. And I remember there's a, it, was a fine, it was a fintech board, and I was on there with some other people. And I remember one of the board or panelists was like, you can't tell me the future of fintech is 30 branches in a city or something like that. 
And I said, you know, let's just let's just pause on that for a minute. Because if your finances are simple and your finances are, and you've been somewhat successful, you can log on to pretty much any fintech bank would help you, will be a help to you because you don't really need much and you just need to be able to move money around. But if you're not successful or you've had a misstep with, with your credit, or if you're uh, not been, you know, uh, simple, your credit is not simple, you might be a first generation, you, know, you actually need a person. And you actually most likely want that person to sit across from you or at least have access to that person. So technology also has to be about connecting you to the right person at the right time, not just giving you access to a technology platform. So I think my approach is always that when, you know, I love the, the, top, the, the name of this one is called Humanized Software because it is still about connecting people in, in my world and, and how to make sure that happens <laughs> at the right times. And as technology continues to improve or to take out more tactical things and continues to move up the tactical stack, how do we elevate the interactions with our people to a level that they're continuing to actually build value on top of what technology can make? Because there's a huge bunch of studies that say from a member loyalty or customer loyalty, 70% of that loyalty is actually built by just making the easy things easy. Right. Yeah. Just doing the repetitive things repetitively and making it so taking all the friction out and technology is great at that. And then 30 percent is that kind of extra touch, you know, the 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 Disney touch, they call it, or the the, the uh, Waldorf Astoria touch or the, you know, those extra little things. You hear these stories about people doing, but that's actually not where loyalty is built. Most loyalty is actually built at making those easy things easy. And it's that blend of technology and human uh, that actually makes all the difference, I think, for us and what we're trying to do at UFCU. But really throughout my career, I think that's what has been the uh, one of the threads that's kind of led my whole career through there. So, Chris, you have given me lots of gold to okay. go off of, um, starting with the fact that I know that we, whether we may not uh, know it or not, quite probably crossed paths um, in Seattle uh, in the late 90s to early 2000s as I was involved in the community. Um, I was up in Seattle from 95 to 06. Mm. And before I moved back here, I know we had that conversation several years right. after uh, or several years ago when we, we had first met and your connection to UW. Uh, the UW, um, so to speak, and several folks that I know that are near and dear to me that are up in that area. What I want to touch first base on is because I think it's very core to who you are, and it speaks to the humanization concept that we're talking about as it relates to software. But now we're going to start on the people side. Yeah. You were a teacher. You helped out in inner city Seattle with a child care center. As you were in your early formative years, mm -hmm. your life was shaped quite a bit by your mother, yeah. from what you'd said, and you're one of six kiddos that are part of the same family in small town Spokane, Washington. It was safe, it was secure, but it was also, there was a yearning that you had that you wanted to do more, you wanted to experience more. And you wanted to help more. It's certainly the Chris Turnley that I know and have known over, goodness, I don't know if it's eight or nine or seven years, whatever it is, but it's certainly the Chris that I've come to know. So let, let, let's talk a little bit about that. This desire, the, and, and you and I both recognize that we're very, very blessed in so many different ways. You have been guided in so many different ways from your parents, yeah. from external factors, from your siblings. What truly has made Chris 
into the human that he is as of March 28th of 2023? Oh, man. Um, so I'll try and keep this a little bit briefer. Um, really, it's been, I mean, I was saved at a, and for those who are in different parts of their faith life, right? I mean, that that is not, you know, I think you're, God meets you everywhere and, 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 and I'm okay with that. So I'll just say for me, it was changed in 1981 at a Billy Graham crusade. What I saw was not just God helping my life, but I saw the power of a lot of people coming together. So the town at that time was, Spokane was maybe 125,000 people, something like that. And I'm going to blow the numbers, but but there were 288,000 people that went through this, this crusade at the time. It was like 10 days. And, and I thought about that. This is the fact that I it cemented in me that there are big moves out there where you can actually impact and change a city. And, and even though, you know, God was changing my life, it was people that were doing that work that did that. And I had, I had parents that even though they weren't always on the same journey as me, they never gave up. And, you know, as people talk about, you can have a dysfunctional grow up, you know, growing up and a loving one. Like my parents never spoke anything but the best about me, right? And, and never believed anything, but like you can do, even today, you know, it's funny, like you do these amazing things or I was... We were meeting with the the, the governor uh, last week, and I promise that's not a flex. That's just something that happened. And but the first comment was my mom on like on like whatever post it was about this. She's like, "You're doing so amazing," you know. And she's just she's so she's great for that. So like when I said I'm my mom's my mom's kid, I mean encouragement is is a gift that that I think is is big. And then it's I had a lot of people that were around me that were smarter than I was growing up that were had maybe more gifts than I did. And they didn't get out, right? And, and so, you know, a lot of cases, I am very blessed just to recognize that too, right? Just to be like, so whether it's working with kids in the, you know, when I was in college or continuing mission trips, or, you know, we do a lot of work today, or I do a lot of work in, in the last 15, 20 years in the homeless community because our homeless neighbors need that too. And so, because there's they're, they're people just trying to do the next step. And I think for me, that's, that's, I, I probably try and keep my life centered on that. I'm still just a person trying to do the next step, right. And everything else above that is, is a blessing. And so I think that, that, that thinks about the technologies I invest in, that's companies I invest in as an investor or advisor. And it's the companies that I want to work at, right. It are really ones that, that actually make a difference. We talk about, you know, I, I, I talk about, I should say, when it's when it comes to building like my core team or people I want to do life with, and Andrew, you certainly fit into this. People I want to do life with are people I like, love, and trust, right? And 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 if you're blessed, you kind of get to choose that. And so I, I think I want to because I think those people. But my wife also always reminds me that I'm I'm really the most interested and invested in my purposeful friends, right? And that's friends where we are. We don't have to be doing the same thing, but we are co-building for a better world. And again, it's a belief that there is a better world. Like I'm not hung up on politics. I'm not hung up on people's belief of what they believe is true. It isn't. But if you want to be, if you want to build this place and make it a little bit better, then there's room for you and I to, to co-build, connect, help each other, encourage each other along the way. And I think that's, that's probably what makes me me is that I've known a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds and across every one of those backgrounds, you know, uh, racially, ethnically, 
belief-wise, you know, a friend of mine is the head of the Austin Atheist Society, right? And so like I've known him, I know his journey. And but but he, but yeah, he's not out there trying to hurt the world, right? He's out there actually trying to help people what he thinks is the best way he can, right? And so I think you gotta acknowledge that that you know, if God loves everybody, then then we need to find a little love for that too. And that he never gave up on anybody. So why would I give up on anybody or build a structure or a technology that does not allow the most access possible? So thank you, Chris, for that. I know that was a, a, a direct and, and very, very personal way to yeah. ask a, a specific question. And I knew kind of where it would go. And this is what I love about this particular live cast. It's yeah. on humanizing software. But the topics that we discuss can range from religion, to politics, to technology, to current events, to a whole bunch of different things, things from our past, things that make up our individual experience. And that is the humanization side of that equation. You, you mentioned that God's a big part of your life. Um, you know that it, he is for me as well. Uh, and I'm Catholic. So I've got guilt just coming into this show today. I mean, it's right. just part of how we how we do things. And so it, it's one of those things that that's important to me, yet what's important to me, as you said it, doesn't necessarily mean that it's important for everybody else. Right. So you are running, and this is, this is a great segue into your running member experience right. for University Federal Credit Union. And I'm a happy member. Um, I have been for uh, actually since last year, thanks to Tony. As a member. Thank you for that. Yeah. You said obsessed with members. You guys have a lot of members. Yeah. Not all of your members need or want the same thing. Right. Not all of your members have the same expectations. From a member experience perspective. And now let's bring in the technology side right. to this. You've got John and Jane Doe, who are a couple, as an example, that are in their 60s. Yeah. You've got their grandson, Jimmy, who has just graduated from college yeah. and is deciding whether to become a member. You've got folks that might be a single mom in her 40s, a dad that is returning from overseas, has served in the military. You've got a wide spectrum of folks that are members of UFCU. How do you guys continue to be obsessed with members, keeping in mind the technologies that you have in place that leverage that capability for you to do so? That's a great question. I think it starts with um, figuring out which members to be obsessed with. Right. And, and because you can't be obsessed with everybody or you build, you know, you build bland technology that actually doesn't work or interfaces. I want to call it technology interfaces that don't work for anybody. So, you know, we think about credit unions. The reason we were created was for members of modest means. Right. It doesn't mean we can't serve people who have been super successful. A lot of our members have grown and been become amazingly successful. But what we focus is, fam, you know, families just starting out. Right. People in college, you know, who are trying to, to figure their things out. You know at some point in high school, because they're having to get debit cards to figure this stuff out a little bit earlier. And then those groups of people who don't have access today and how to give them better access, either because of past missteps or because the system isn't set up for that. Like, how do we give them help, access to a healthy area? So that, those are the areas where we focus. And then, 
we then look at three channels, right? There's how people want to do it is in-person and how does the technology work with the in-person in a branch? Is it easy to use? Is it easy to co-build together? So even something small as like our tables all rotate so that you can do side-by-side coaching instead of across the table coaching, right? So little things that fit into the whole user experience. Um, and then it's over the phone, right? Is it easy to understand in multiple languages? Is it easy to get to where you want? How do we layer more AI in there to actually take the number of calls from, you know, whatever thousand a month down, down by 40%? Because actually most, a lot of those people don't need to talk to someone. They're actually just looking for something quick. And that frees up everyone else to spend more time digging in and solving problems, right? So, so layering on and making that easy. And then the last one is then digital, right? And this is actually one, it's a great timing because we're launching a new online mobile platform because we've been a little bit more laggard in this one where we have moved to a technology which was kind of a misstep and we got to jump in and redo. So we we looked hard at it and said, okay, when, when do we think we're going to run into um, a top of some of the banking technology platforms that are out there? So we chose a vendor and uh, that we thought would give us more road space to actually build. It's a platform. So it's more work to build, but it gives us a longer runway. And I could go on a 20 minute rant. I'm not going to about enterprise software and why it just doesn't work easy anymore. After doing the same thing for 20 years, I'm not really sure, but I'm going to leave that Andrew with you, you know, but as it, as the user, and I'm like, it, it took us about, you know, we try and make decisions, you know, there's kind of like this unwritten rule where like, is it a nine minute decision, a nine day decision or a nine month, this, you know, what, 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 what kind of, what are we talking about? And if it's not nine months, then you know, what, what are we doing? That seems like too long for us to be trying to get something done. And so some things we can make really quickly, I think Patrick Lencioni calls it the horseshoe decision-making where you just kind of make your decision around something versus, you know, trying to be too precise. And we try and stay there. We keep the member focused in the middle. We know we're going to make little data guided decisions around there and be really close to what we want to do, but we want to move more, more quickly. But it's those three channels that we want to keep in mind. A lot of people have been declaring, and at some point they might be right, like the branch is dead and we're not going to build anymore. <clears throat> All I know is they aren't, and we keep building more of them and the members need them in certain areas. But what has changed, to give an example, members of certain demographics actually don't need uh, a branch. They don't go into a branch. And then there's other demographics that utilize branches all the time. Right. And so now it's not just about building more branches. It's about understanding which members and which demographics actually want to utilize that channel more often and making sure that those are accessible. Right. So you might move one from here to there. And it's also understanding that, you know, the phone channel isn't really just a phone channel. It is the, the place people want to get easy questions answered for the most part. And then, but the other thing I'll say about um, in-person, and this is where I think a lot of people get it wrong because they look at it through an efficiency lens, right? An in-person transaction is not about efficiency. Like if you're driving in Austin, Texas, if you're driving across town to go to a branch, that's the least efficient thing you can do depending on the time of day. So you're actually looking for either something you couldn't get answered a different way or you're looking for some human interaction. So where I probably diverge from a lot of my counterparts is when you come into a branch, you're going to interact with a person. You're not going to talk to someone else on a screen. You're not going to be like, oh, great, we've got this kiosk over here. Some people, and it's working for them, but it's really an efficiency play, and I, I don't like it. I would rather then move the technology to my phone 
and have you just call in from your house and save you that one hour drive or the childcare you needed or whatever you needed to come into the branch. And so I think we've got to match the technology versus the demographics, but also what the person's trying to do. So it's interesting because, um, and I, I think a lot, this the concept of this in-person versus on the phone, and I would even throw chat roughly into that as a means of interaction yeah. and, then, and then in person, yes. all lumped into this concept in financial services, which is something I'm familiar with and Tailwind's quite familiar with on this yeah. omni-channel omni experience, whether it's driving up, whether it's walking into, whether it's over the phone, whether it's texting, or if it's going in through an online banking or mobile banking application, having a similar experience and being, being able to do that from an omni-channel perspective for John or Jane Doe, it's going to be different than grandson Jimmy, than uh, overseas um, uh, service member who's coming back versus single mom. Everybody has different needs that are particular to that. The beautiful thing about technology is also the same thing relative to the curse of technology. The beautiful thing is technology leverages us to be able to do so much more now than what we were able to do three years, five years, 10 years ago. And yet, when used as a crutch, it can actually take away right. from that experience. If Jimmy, which might be more likely or not, depending upon his demographics and his age, because we're, as, if you look at generation of the baby boomers versus X, Y, Z, the, the new alpha that's coming out that are growing up with the technology that you will see if you put an iPhone in a young toddler's hands, they're going to be able to interact with it. And they're going to figure out quickly how to do things, especially when taught, because it's intuitive. This concept of intuitiveness of leveraging technology to make things easier, also in the same vein, can chain or anchor us to the same devices. And I'm guilty as charged yeah. here. Those little red notifications go off on my iPhone and I've just got to get fixated and that just needs to be dealt with to the detriment in some cases of me maintaining and keeping the pure humanistic side, the relationship side. So how do we balance the wonderful aspect of being more efficient where I can pick up a phone and if you gave me a book recommendation right now, I could go on Amazon and it'll be here tomorrow versus us having the opportunity to break bread together, us being able to be at a board meeting and hug each other, shake each other's hand, look each other in the eye, and actually have that purely human moment associated with that. How do we weigh the human side versus the technology side in your mind, Chris? No, that's a, that's a great one. I think, I think the way I think about it is, is for us and for me, what the culture, for me, relationships are all there is at the end of the day. Right. I mean, so, you know, because what we do might change. Right. So Andrew Toll might decide one day he wants to become a, you know, a circus performer. Right. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I would go see that show because I know Andrew. Right. And I'm like, hey, I want to go see my buddy do the, you know, the thing he always wanted. To you just want to see me get eaten by a lion. That's or what some, you hey, want. I'm not judging what you should do in the circus. I got some recommendations, but I'm just saying they're probably there. But I would say like. That for me is, is, is huge. And I think a lot of times we were willing to sacrifice the relationship for efficiency. So I think it's just not doing that with your head in the sand, right? So 
give an example. We're actually going on a, on a journey to, to buy a, another piece of enterprise technology, another a CRM. And I took the team through a, a long process because I wasn't really sure we're ready for it, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, we probably knew what CRM we should buy and we knew what CRM that the group was going to recommend. But it was the journey of building the relationships and organizational alignment and trust that was worth the journey of us deciding this. And then we'll, we'll have to decide you know, what we're going to end up purchasing. But it's it's not missing those moments, right? Because you could just buy the technology. And what a lot of people do is they buy the technology and then they make the decisions. And, and then they're like, oh, now that we have this technology, we should figure out what we think about this. And we end up digitizing a whole bunch of crud. And, and instead of taking an actual pure digital approach to what is the member trying to do? What is the employee trying to do? And are these, you know, development opportunities? Are these relational opportunities? And not all of them are. And if they aren't, then you're like, wow, the technology should make this more efficient, right? But, but we don't do the work up front to say, actually, what's the purpose of that interaction, right? And if the purpose, if someone takes a view that the purpose of a branch interaction, for example, is purely transactional, then yeah, you should make that as efficient as possible. If it's about getting value and understanding where the person is in their journey and asking a couple more questions, we have a branch down in Galveston, Texas, and there's a, one of our amazing workers. She's worked there for 30 years in the, as, as a teller. I was, I was with her one day and I was in there about an hour and you know, people came by. 50% of the people came by had nothing, no reason to come by at all other than just to say, hey. Wow. And you think about the relational piece of that and what that does in a community and what that does for a community, it matters. And you have to believe that matters. And I think, you know, again, my, my, uh, my, my concern, it's not a worry. Concern is like generationally does that pass, right? Does, does that relationship still, will my kids still believe that just stopping by to say, Hey, to somebody matters, or will just sending a text be enough, right? Cause sometimes it is that face-to-face, but I think it's getting really clear about what's in business. It's getting really clear about what's the purpose of each action. And is it, is it relational? Is it value creation or is it efficiency? And I want to solve some of the efficiency things. And then I want to, you know, for efficiency, and then I want to amplify, I want technology to amplify the relational and value creation. So if I'm sitting in front of you and the, and the technology can feed me up more information about you when, when we're going to meet, so now all of a sudden I've got a deep knowledge of Andrew and his family and he's why he's got a daughter going to college in a year and he's got this. I, I have a much richer conversation. So technology can add to that. But if technology, is, if, if technology is used just to send you a form and says, hey, Andrew, here's the stuff you should do based on my recommendation. Well, then I really missed an opportunity, actually, to probably get you farther in that conversation than that piece of paper is going to get you on it. So because if the piece of paper is going to solve it, we would have solved it. So interesting, and I believe it was Stephen Covey and the seven effective habits of highly successful folks that uh, one of them was begin with the end in mind. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that specifically, and it's something that from a development perspective, we run into all the time from a tailwind perspective. Yeah. Is people ask, and I just had a call right before our conversation with a uh, credit union we've been doing business with for four years um, up, in, uh, up in Michigan, and they're really trying to better understand their customer digital experience. Yeah. And they have some challenges about what is, how do we actually even capture that? What does that mean? And we had a pretty good, briefly philosophical conversation about the 
again, power and detriment of technology as it pertains to that. Um, everything from net promoter score to yeah. your app rating in Google or Apple store to what your customer satisfaction is when you do surveys in a phone survey from a credit union perspective. All those are input factors and yeah. all those can be measured or captured very via various means of technology. However, if you don't begin at the very onset with what makes John and Jane Doe, who we've decided are going to be the subset members that are most yeah. important, because you said at the very beginning, and I want to make sure I understood, Chris, can it satisfy everybody? Right. So, so understand who your core is. And this isn't just for UFCU. This is, I think, valid for any particular business or any particular nonprofit. Who is your core and how do you make sure that you build around making sure that your core is happy and engaged and satisfied? Right. How do you leverage not just technology, but other tools, other resources, other people to engage, adapt, enroll, and get people involved in that to make sure that you're actually getting what you need to get done from an end user perspective? So you said several times that you view yourself, and this is interesting because I don't view yourself as this. You've said you've called yourself a laggard a few times as it pertains to technology. You're kind of taking a little bit of a, and I'll use the crossing the chasm uh, yeah. uh, methodology. You're not interested there in being on that iceberg on the very tip in the front. You want to wait and see, okay, Clubhouse kind of been and gone. NFTs, let's not even get started. Crypto, that's a conversation for another different day mm -hmm. and age. AI, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Humans have this shiny object capability of let's go and find out. From the dawn of mankind, we've always had the, I'm pretty sure that the original cavemen and cavewoman were like, oh, squirrel or the yeah. equivalent uh, way back when. Always gone after that shiny object. How do we take a step back? And you've said that you're a laggard. I don't agree with you on that. I think that you're pretty innovative in terms of your relationships and how you want to involve people to make change when change is relevant. You're talking about a CRM project you guys are embarking upon, and it sounds like you've got a good process with how you guys are trying to build this out correctly in the right way. Walk me through why Chris believes that Chris is a lagger yeah. versus an innovator. It's a great question, and I'll apologize to everybody watching, because this is probably the most hand usage between Andrew and I. We're both... Really good, just hand talkers. I don't know. I don't know what the total amount of hand hand gestures in one one live cast, but we probably will break that record. Um, so why I view that is like I don't think it's an excuse. What I tell people, like you have to move out of your comfort zone, especially as we get older, right? Like, I think I know a lot of people in their career kind of stopped at their ability to understand or engage with technology, right? So when I say laggard, I think about you know what I'm willing to roll out amongst people, not where I spend my time, right? So. Um, about a month ago, there was this kind of viral demo that went on around a combination of a couple of technologies of, you know, someone spoke to, hey, I want to see this. Um, it was ChatGPT. It was like, hey, I want to see what, what's the code, you know, what would it look like to have a, um, a, a sign-up page for, I can't remember the technology, you know, whatever they said, hey, show me a sign-up page. And they, they drew one up. And then it was like, hey, export the code to that. And they exported it over here into, into GitHub's, you know, AI. And then it, and then it built it and it was done. It was a great side little thing. You could change some colors and it was done in like five seconds. And you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Like how would we, how should we be adapting our company 
knowing that's coming within, let's say the next eight, 12 to 18 months. I mean, it was not far off. It's probably faster than that, but for us, it'll probably, it'll probably. then what should our developers be interested in? What should we be looking at knowing that this baseline building stuff will not be there? And how do we add value to that? What, what I say laggard, what I think about is I want to live in this innovative world over here, but I've got to bring 400,000 members. You know, what we're trying to be is impacting a million lives in, by, in the next eight years. And so how do I bring a million people with me, with a thousand employees with me on that journey? Well, I can't chase every shiny object. Now, we should have a group over here that does testing and, you know, um, we should have a group over here that does experiments and we should understand how to do experiments really well. But that group should be over here connected to the members, should be understanding where we're at with the members, but should all be almost treated a little bit like a startup within an incubator. And then we should have a thesis around that. When I was at Iron Mountain, we developed a thesis around innovation that worked for us is it had some really high bars of things we could innovate on our own because we were a big company. Knowing we we sucked at innovation, as most big companies do, and, and most big companies just are not going to be honest about that. Right? So I said, hey, if it's not, if it can't do these kind of almost impossible things, we're not going to develop it internally because it'll never see the light of day. So we're going to buy it. Right. And so I think it gives me a, um, a thesis to work through of like, what should we develop our own? What should we utilize outside partners for? What should we buy? Right. And what should we build? And and so I think my laggard is like I tend to be slow, a little slower to pull it. Like I'm not maybe not a laggard is the right term, but I'm not scared when someone else tells me, wow, we just inter- integrated this great new technology. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. One of the most innovative things I've seen in the last couple of years is there's a retirement app like that is isn't built for like, hey, you're going to retire in 20 years. It's built for the people that are actually retiring today. and and. But guess what? They're all of their user groups were people in their 50s and 60s. The, the app is designed for those people. It gives really detailed, minutiae information that is only important if you're at that stage of life. Hyper-focused. And they're not trying to be bigger than that because that's a huge flipping market for them. And they live in that market. And I think too often we don't live in the market. Well, knowing that where we're trying to move these million people forward and a lot of them are of modest means, we can't. We can't just do the newest tech that serves, you know, 2% of them, even though those might be some of the things we do. The main things we do actually have to impact a large number of people. And, um, and so I think I, I always try and keep the, the gravity of that in mind when I'm thinking about what the experiment is and the mission of, of understanding really what we're here to do. It's funny if you watch, a, you know, old movies and you're like, someone goes into a bank you know, in the, a cowboy goes into a bank in the 1800s. It looks not all that dissimilar than what they do today. You know, so some of it's like we've changed a lot and all these new tech and all this moving money around and, and, and derivatives and all these things. But ah, it, the, the human interaction, if that's still the main thing, we're still here to serve members, then we got to keep that front and center. So what I'm hearing you say is that maybe laggard isn't the best. You're not necessarily going to be on the bleeding, leading, or the cutting edge of necessarily trying out for yeah. 1,000 members or a million lives that you want to touch. Yeah. The, the very newest, brightest, of shiniest of objects, yet you're going to keep up with the trends and make sure that going back to focusing in on your center, your core, how do we make sure that we're leveraging the best technologies, capabilities, 
whatever it is that is specific to maintaining our focus on being obsessive with our core members. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, I'll give you an example. So like I, my nighttime reading and my week is, is way over here in the obsessive, new, innovative, fun, but, but it's always got to go through the lens of like, how would this get used by our, to improve our member or our employee's life? If it doesn't make it through that filter, it doesn't really matter, right? It's just cool stuff that other people are doing that might get at somebody. So I don't utilize, but I'm on TikTok, right? I don't utilize, but I'm on, you know, be real. When all these new things come out, I'll try them because I think you have to stay modern, right? As an executive, and especially at an enterprise of any size, I think your, your, your job is to stay modern. I don't need to be hip. That's kind of, the, you know, I tell my kids, like, you're not going to see me doing TikTok dances, but you, but I bet, Lord, thank everybody. Um, but I better understand how TikTok can help us reach more members in demographics where we might not be reaching them today, that we want to reach them. I better understand how these platforms work. I better understand how the, how people are interacting with them. And I think too many people use their discomfort or you just get to a certain age, like, oh, I'm just tired of dealing with this stuff. And you, you stop realizing all of these innovations can actually help you reach more people. So if I have, you know, use, I'll use the, the AI development, you know, with, with GitHub um, that I saw earlier and, and you see, you're like, okay, what would that allow our developers to do if they didn't just have to write basic stuff? Or what would that allow our website or web interactions to be if we could flip the pages more quickly, right? And writing, I think I saw a thing on a great on AI. I was like, here's five jobs that they think are going to be the, I, I wouldn't want to be one of those, like I get highlighted. Here's five jobs that could go away, you know, based on what they can do. But it will, it's not those jobs will go away, but those people that are going to be excellent, those jobs are going to have to elevate their value to build on top of that, right? Cool. So- so I think that that's the amazing opportunity I see, Andrew, is, is, is like, I just want to look at that lens of, of a value and make sure that that value is right there. Totally understood on a number of fronts. And you just brought up and you mentioned it, uh, ChatGPT in particular. I'm quite curious um, on the generative AI side. So you've got OpenAI that's now been backed with $10 billion, 10 yeah. billion, that's a B billion from Microsoft who's made some incredible moves in the space. And then of course, Google with Bard, Baidu coming in with their version and others that are coming in with different levels of artificial intelligence, mostly at this point, generative AI to you set up an account, yeah. you type in a prompt and you get back. Um, and Brett Hurt posted something earlier this week or shared out something that was uh, by another friend of his of he wanted to start a company and he wanted to see how far he could do it through chat GPT right. version four in 30 minutes. And in 30 minutes, he was able to put together a positioning statement, a branding statement, get a logo, put together a whole bunch of uh, campaigns, yep. put together a um, uh, brand documentation piece and build a generic website, which he then altered because it didn't yep. provide some of the capabilities. Um, and he demonstrated this in a series of videos. Um, that is not only disruptive, but yeah. obviously game-changing for a number of different industries. Yeah, right. You and I are both keeping tabs on this. Uh, it's something very important, and we're obviously exploring it quite deeply at Tailwind. 
where do you see this generative AI making its biggest, most immediate impact? Well, I, I think it's going to be what kind of what you just said. I'm going to call them, I don't mean to, this, it's not tactical stuff, but it's going to be like functional things, you know, create a website. And then I'm going to, the value is going to then be created by tweaking it to make it actually function, right? Write me uh, some positioning statements, and then I'm going to add my special sauce that really makes them, us them and makes language, right? So I think about, you know, this central, you li we live in central Texas. There's a certain vernacular of central Texas. There's a certain connectivity of Austin that makes Austin Austin. And if you miss that, you could market all day long and you're going to sound like somewhere else, right? I think, I think, so I think you're going to see real functional gain. That's what I, that's what I see in open AI. If you look at it, 10 billion, it's a huge number, but it's not a huge number. If you think you just changed the world, right? So even OpenAI, I think, realizes that this is going to go wildfire and integrate into a lot of different things through a lot of different companies. So if you just look at the valuation, I'm not to geek out on valuation and stuff, but if you just look at the valuation of what Microsoft paid, you're kind of at a spot going like, ooh, if I just develop the one thing that is going to change, like, and I think I could actually keep it in the bottle and make everyone come to my bottle to buy it, I just think it's going to go wider than that. And so... Um, or, and I believe they have to, too, or else they would have gotten 20. Like it would have been even greater of a, of a deal. So because of that, then I start to look and say, OK, I think I think there's going to be so many little functional plays that is going to give people. And it's just going to be what's the rate of adoption of that. And you're going to start hearing these stories like you start to hear about some of this generative AI. I was in a meeting on Saturday, I guess it was. And they were talking about, you know, chat GPT was given or someone was, you had put a layer on top of it to kind of convince a heat, you know, to, uh, it was like, how much money could chat GPT make given $60? Or, you know, essentially that was the, the, the that. And, and there was, it ran into a site where it had to, um, it had to use CAPTCHA. Well, it can't get around CAPTCHA. So it had to, it paid a human $5 to try and to get around, you know, caption it was like, Hey, I'll give you five bucks if you click this button for me. And so some of those things, it, that's a little scary. So then they shut that guy down and they shut down the one, the, the search engine that got depressed about itself. That was only a search. <laughs> right. So then they shut. So I think there's always these scary stories of like, Oh no. And never all of us have seen enough zombie or robot movies to know, you know, where this could go. But I think it's really going to be like, look at, you know, the same thing that, the internet did, which was made finding things easier, right? So this next layer is going to be making building things easier, right? So it doesn't mean that just because you're the, the video, since a video series that you just talked about at the beginning, it doesn't mean any of it's going to work. It doesn't mean he's going to sell a thing, right? You still have to integrate with your, your customer. You still got to get customer focused. You still got to learn as a company. You still have to hire really good people to go out and do this. You still need more than your friends and family to buy something from you to make a lasting business and kind of get that one penny principle, you know, kind of thing that you've actually earned something by yourself. And so all those things, I don't think change for a while, but I think that the building of functional things will become easier, much like 3D printing, right? All of a sudden you could create things, but it hasn't, you know, think how long 3D printing has been around. And so many, you still see these amazing videos and you're still wowed by them. But it's 10 years, right? And think how long it takes to really break through some of that stuff. Now, AI, this, this may go faster, but it's still going to take us a while as humans to absorb 
what that means and adapt to it. And so the rate of change is still somewhat throttled by us. It's not throttled by technology. The rate of change is throttled by us, not by technology. That is a perfect segue into the title of our live cast is Humanizing Software. The subtitle is People-Driven Tech. I have asked every single one of our guests since inception what their take what is there when I say the three words people driven tech? What comes to mind? So, Chris, three words people driven tech. How do you what does that mean to you? So, it's two things one, it's, it's a lot of what we've been talking about, which is it's keeping the people I'm trying to influence. I have a job, and, and I'm, I'm there, I'm, it is to impact the lives of a certain number of people, whether that be a million or whether that be 400,000 in central, mostly in Texas and impact their lives. The technology has to improve doing that. It either has to improve the lives of our employees to make that happen, or it has to improve the lives of the people uh, for doing that. There's a lot of, give me an example of what's not that in my view is, is really complex technology, right? I don't, I don't think that helps anybody uh, interface on the interface side because it doesn't get used. Technology that gets built and not used just does not help. I'm giving, you know, CRMs, as you look, we talked about this earlier, they're only good if people put data in them. I mean, that's the, that's the only way they're good. And so and they and don't. good quality data to boost. Yes. I mean, and it and has they only to do that if the interface actually helps you do that, mm-hmm. right? And, and encourages use. So for me, it's, it's technology that gets used in the intended manner. So if, if, if we put out a, a financial health financial health application, it's only value is in the member utilizing it. If, if I roll out a new technology internally that allows for efficiency gain or more, it's only good if, the, if it actually the employees utilize it. And so for me, I think all value of technology is then driven by the, by the end goal of the person actually utilizing it in the way it is intended. Um, even though you know you, your business models may change, your revenue models may change, your everything, but if, if you're putting something out there and the and the person's actually not utilizing it, um, then then there's no value to it. But just because it can do those things, and so that's when you know we go back to our earlier discussion about laggard or not lag. It's because I want to see that there's actual value in the in the technology before I'm going to deploy it. Maybe not before I use it personally. I've got so many goofy little apps that I'm testing out and all these things. And it was the same when we were building Dosh, but I do think you get to a spot where you're like, Oh yeah, that's actually made someone's life harder, not easier. And we just actually had a project last week that was rolling out and I'm like, wait, whoa, whoa, this doesn't solve any of the three things and actually makes people's lives harder. So we just killed it, right? Killed the project in the middle of it. And, and I think you've just got to be a little bit, you got to know where those lines are of value that you're really trying to create as a company. And then from there, those decisions are actually easy. People say, well, it's so hard to stop stuff. I'm like, it is, but it is, it's a lot harder if you don't have a thesis about what actual value is. And that shouldn't change regardless of the technology. So value, the valuing of the human input, making sure that, and I'm going to kind of circle back around as I bring us together, because we're getting close to the top of the hour. And I have a question about, uh, you mentioned that your obsessive reading, I want to talk about what you're currently reading right now is kind of as we wrap things up. But what you've talked about from the get-go is your life as you have been developed by your family, your friends, your environment. Right. Wanting to help people, wanting to facilitate and nurture relationships. Yeah. You've talked about 
your big company, startup, nonprofit involvement. And I've heard you mention probably 10 or 12 times during the course of the last hour, this concept of helping, this concept of innovating, and this concept of facilitating. I have seen you help and innovate and facilitate in the nonprofit and the business sector many, many times. And I'm very thankful to have you in my life, Chris, and showing me your way of doing that, which I have learned from numerous different times. Yeah. So this concept, as I'm hearing it from you, if we summarize, humanizing software is making sure whether you are viewed as cutting or leading edge or possibly laggard or on the very, very last adopter side, being able to understand how to get people enrolled, engaged, and involved, being obsessive about how their experience is. Those are things that are most important to keep the humans and the technology walking in lockstep together. Is, is that fair? That's fair. I think that they're walking, that the, the, the person is feeling the value of, of the technology improving their life. Excellent. So wrapping up with, what are you reading right now, Chris, in a minute or less? Okay, so we I just took my team through um, and actually company wide we're going through right now. Maybe that's the best one to talk about is uh, Lencioni's Working Genius is something that we're working through right now. It I ought to be a real candidate. I read it one time and I was like, oh, I don't quite get it. And then I read it. This, I, I was working with my team and realizing that how work gets done. And, and we really had to as all this technology came in, these improvements, the, but there's actually certain parts of work that get you excited and whatever. And that didn't change. And that's probably the most valuable thing. There's a lot of other cool books. I'm, I'm kind of a one book a week kind of nerd, but that's actually been one that you kind of realize when something catches fire with your team. That's really a right book, right time for where we're at right now as a company. Working genius. And I need to take that one book at one time type thing because I have A, not a very smart person to begin with, and B, have ADD of the business and personal mind. So I'm usually reading four or five different yeah. things simultaneously and, and, and somehow wondering why I get confused. And yeah, I wonder, I did going. this thing too where I would do, it's called, I call it the snowplow reading where, every, where you just push a little bit forward on all these books. And I'm like, okay, I don't, and then I'm like, you know, I'm much better at a singular, like a shovel approach to reading and, uh, yeah. and, and the snowplow. And I'm just a snowfall kind of guy. Just it all falls down and, and, and who knows where it's ever going to happen. Um, Chris, thank you a thousand times over for joining us today. Um, I loved it. A blessing to have on the live cast, to have in my life, and to uh, have us share this journey together. I love the um, live, trust, love uh, uh, comment about uh, uh, have those folks that you have in your life, both yeah. in the short and long term. But it's just been interesting to hear. And I've learned a few things here today uh, from your perspective. And thank you for sharing that with our folks that are either listening in live or that those are going to be afterwards. So again, thank you a thousand times over for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. And as we wrap up today, um, please join us next Tuesday. We've got Corinne Bartow from MX who's going to be sharing her thoughts on humanizing software. And as we continue our journey together, please visit our website, engage with us digitally, reach out, ask questions, find out. We'd love to hear from you about what your thoughts are in this particular area and go out and help somebody be innovative, creative, or make their mark. So as we wrap up today, we want to wish everybody a very, very good morning, a good afternoon, and a good evening. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. 
make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.